από τον αμαρτιό. Pageantry and ceremony in Rome as the Roman Catholic Church installs its first pope from outside Europe in almost 1300 years. And he hails from Argentina. This week, Latin Pulse goes in-depth on Latin America's first pope. We'll discuss Pope Francis and what he means to the region. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse this week, Spirituality and Science. For Spirituality Matters, we'll discuss the Argentine Pope, Pope Francis. And on the flip side of that coin, science and health, a look at the rising concerns over cancer in Latin America. But first, Kurt Devine is back, and he has more on the Pope's formal installation this week in Rome. The Vatican officially installed Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Argentina as Pope Francis, the 266th pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Francis gave his homily to a crowd of about 200,000 people in St. Peter's Square. To protect Jesus with Mary, to protect the whole of creation, to protect each person, especially the poorest, to protect ourselves. This is a service that the Bishop of Rome is called to carry out, yet one to which all of us are called, so that the star of hope will shine brightly. Let us protect with love all that God has given us. Argentine President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner became the first foreign head of state to meet with the Pope. The two leaders have had a contentious relationship in the past, disagreeing on social issues such as same-sex marriage. The trial of Guatemala's former head of state began this week in Guatemala City, with witnesses describing what prosecutors call his crimes against humanity. About 150 witnesses will testify in the trial against Efrain Rios Mont, who served as head of state in the early 80s when more than 1,700 villagers were killed. The trial hinges upon whether Rios Mont was complicit and knowledgeable of the killings by state security forces. One witness described how soldiers attacked his village in 1982, killing dozens of his neighbors and tearing out the hearts of some of the victims. United Nations officials say the case marks the first time a former head of state has been brought to a national trial for human rights violations. Venezuela has temporarily cut communication ties with the U.S. established by the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State. Venezuela's Foreign Minister, Alias Hawa, says contact with the U.S. will be postponed until American officials stop interfering with Venezuela's internal affairs. Venezuela expelled two U.S. military representatives earlier this month. The Venezuelan government says they were trying to influence the nation's armed forces. Interim President Nicolas Maduro accuses U.S. officials of plotting to kill the opposition party leader Enrique Capriles Rondonsky before the upcoming presidential election. The U.S. State Department says the claims of U.S.-based plots to destabilize the government are unsubstantiated and outlandish. Dissident Cuban blogger Ioanni Sanchez is currently on an 80-day speaking tour discussing the challenge of free speech in her home country. She stopped in Washington this week and described how Cuban youth have been using online and mobile technologies to circumvent the government's restrictions. Today, 
An activist inside the island with only a cell phone can take that technology and stand up against the monopolized state media, which has silenced Cubans for decades. Sanchez says online technology alone is not sufficient to topple the current regime, but she believes social media and mobile phones help activists to puncture holes in governmental censorship. She called all Cubans to lay aside fear and speak out for greater reform. While Sanchez was touring Washington, Cuba's top diplomat in the United States was holding a rare public appearance to discuss U.S. relations with Cuba. Jose Ramon Cabanas says the U.S. government feels the case of imprisoned contractor Alan Gross is an impediment to better relations. The idea that the, the Alan Gross, Gross case is a major obstacle for the bilateral, I mean, expanding the relations, is a bad idea for some bureaucrats. From our side, we haven't said that the uh, the blockade itself is a major obstacle to, to sit and talk. We haven't said the Guantanamo base that, by the way, you know, is, is a Cuban piece of land. Uh, we haven't said it's a major obstacle to, to sit and talk and to debate and, and to agree on, on, on something. A Cuban court convicted Gross of illegally assisting Cuba's Jewish community with setting up Internet connections. The U.S. government says it will not negotiate major changes in relations between the countries until Gross is free. The Honduran ambassador to the U.S. responded this week to accusations his country's security forces are corrupt and practice extrajudicial killings. Ambassador Jorge Ramon Hernandez Alcero told students and activists at a meeting at American University that some did not have the correct facts about the drug war. He said those calling for the U.S. to end aid to Honduras in the drug war were equally mistaken. Because we've had thousands of people murdered in the country, because we don't have the sufficient resources to struggle and fight alone against the trafficking of drugs. Hernandez also urged students to consider that those buying drugs in the United States are actually supporting the cartels that have brought so much violence to Latin America. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. This week, Pope Francis held his first meetings with presidents from around the world, and as might be expected, the first was President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner of his home country of Argentina. After the session, Fernandez revealed she had asked the Pope to intermediate in the claim Argentina has made on the Falkland Islands, the island group the Argentines call the Malvinas. No word on whether the Pope will follow through on that request, but as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, he did support Argentina's claim. Lest you think this isn't a matter for a Pope to deal with, Pope John Paul II and the Vatican successfully negotiated a dispute between Chile and Argentina over islands near Tierra del Fuego in the 1980s. And of course, Pope Alexander VI, also known by his given name, Rodrigo Borgia, began the process of how Spain and Portugal would split colonial control of Latin America in the 15th century. Let's fast forward, though, a bit more than 500 years back to the present. Our next interview was conducted earlier this week, before President Fernandez revealed her request of the Pope. We asked Professor Andrew Chestnut to give us some perspective on Pope Francis. Chestnut is the author of Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, and he holds a chair in Catholic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Here are excerpts from our interview conducted via Skype. What does this mean for the Catholic Church? 
yeah, it's it's really a seismic shift. I think uh, finally we are seeing a move away from the centuries-old Eurocentrism of the church. And I think there finally was a recognition on the part of significant sectors of the church hierarchy, the global hierarchy, that uh, the future of the church lies in the global south, and most especially in Latin America, where some 42% of the globe's Catholics reside. Throw in Canada and the United States, and the Americas are half, are home to half of the world's Catholics. This is the first time in almost 1,300 years that we have a pope from outside of Europe? Exactly, since the 8th century, where the last non-European pope was uh, the Syrian Pope Gregory. So yes, uh, it's been a millennium, literally a millennium in the making. And this points to some major changes going on just with the selection of a pope. What are your thoughts about how the Catholic Church is rapidly shifting with this choice? Well, again, I think it goes, it goes back to the fact that the future of the Church lies in the global south. Some two-thirds of world Catholics are either Latin American, African, or Asian. The greatest growth is actually happening in Africa and Asia. And so in my recent Huffington Post piece, I basically said we don't, we're not going to see an African or Asian pope because the church is thriving there. However, in Latin America, despite the fact that it's home to almost half of the world's Catholics, the church has been hemorrhaging tens of millions of members, particularly to Pentecostalism, going all the way back to the 1950s. And so I think we can see this from a very strategic perspective in that I think the church realized that it is time to, to cut our losses in Europe and focus on Latin America while there's still time to perhaps revitalize the church and, and not see Latin America go the way that the church has gone in Europe. We're really the only European country left with any kind of dynamism for the church is Poland. Let's talk about this um, rise of Pentecostalism. Uh, it's something that, that we have not really addressed on, on this program in strong ways. And we're talking now about not just a rise of Pentecostalism within Catholicism, but also with competing Christian churches coming into Latin America. Exactly. Um, Pentecostalism, which is, of course, born here in the USA at the beginning of the 20th century and then was quickly exported to Latin America at the beginning of the uh, 19-teens, has been mushrooming throughout the region to the point that uh, on last Sunday there were probably more Pentecostals worshipping in Brazil than there were Catholics at Mass in Brazil, which we all know by now is the largest Catholic population on earth. And so the growth has just been astronomical. Uh, today in Brazil, for example, close to 20% of the population are now Pentecostal. And the significant growth really doesn't start until six decades ago. So it's, it's just been phenomenal growth. Obviously, there's variations within Latin America, but uh, in places like Chile, Brazil, Guatemala, um, if the trend continues, we could actually see Protestant majorities in some of these countries within the next few decades. How do we see this Pentecostalism expressed within Catholicism? Right. And so another reason I think that, that we see a Latin American pope is that 
in Latin America and indeed throughout the global south today, the most vital form of Catholicism is a movement, a lay-led movement called the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which also is an American export. It was born in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University in 1967 and then within a few years exported to Latin America. And what it essentially is, is the Catholic version of Pentecostalism. Indeed, during their first few years of existence in both the U.S. and Latin America, they actually called themselves Catholic Pentecostals. You can imagine that didn't sit too well with the bishops, so within five or six years they had to change the name. But this is the movement that has really helped uh, contributed to a certain revitalization of the church in many Latin American countries, most importantly in gargantuan Brazil. Do we see then as a, as a philosophical stream within Catholicism, that this is the, the, the win of this particular stream, the Pentecostal stream, over liberation theology that was also big in the 60s and 70s? Exactly. That's an excellent question. In fact, liberation theology and its pastoral expression known as the base Christian communities actually were contemporaneous with the Catholic Charismatics who also began in the early 1970s. The, the thing is that none of my fellow academics were paying any attention to the Catholic Charismatics at the time because many of them had their own personal investment in liberation theology and such. I, I, I wrote a few years ago that in liberation theology, the Catholic Church opted for the poor However, by and large, the poor opted for Pentecostalism instead. And so today, liberation theology and the base Christian communities really don't exist anymore while they rapidly were eclipsed by the, uh, by the charismatic renewal within the church. We, and we've, so, yeah. Pardon me. We, we've certainly seen the Venezuelan government try to do its bit to revive liberation theology. I think you see this also discussed a bit in Nicaragua, but... But, uh, but you're right, Pentecostalism is, is really the headline these days. It is, it is. And, and what this points to, the, the larger process that we've seen, is, is a Pentecostalization of the Christian landscape in, in Latin America. If, if, again, among the world of Protestants in Latin America, almost three-quarters of all Protestants today are Pentecostals, over 60% of Brazilian Catholics say they're charismatic, ditto for Guatemala. And so if you do not offer spirit-centered worship in Christian churches in Latin America, with the great exception perhaps of Mormons, you're not going to thrive because that's what Latin Americans have shown a preference for, is for a very hands-on, Holy Spirit-centered religiosity. We do know that the new pope, Pope Francis, is moved by the Holy Spirit. He, he talked about that even in selecting his name, um, but we don't really see him as a, as a Pentecostalist, do we? And we also know that he's not exactly pro-liberation theology either. No, you're right on both scores. In fact, um, it really was his Jesuit confreres who were on the vanguard of, uh, of liberation theology. Pope Francis has said he, he wants to dedicate his papacy to the poor. What is his record there in Argentina? What can you tell us? Uh, he does have a record of, uh, of being on record and making pronouncements in favor of Argentina's poor and oppressed, uh, particularly as Argentina went through bad economic crisis uh, in the middle of 2005, 2006, made some pretty strong uh, pronouncements uh, condemning uh, 
global capitalism as condemning a large portion of uh, of people in his country to to misery. However, at the same time, um, Pope Francis was no friend of liberation theology, uh, which often relied on Marxist social analysis and and had a very kind of structural, often a structural rejection of capitalism as basically uh, not being, uh, not jibing with the, uh, with Christian values and, and many of those who were proponents of liberation theology actually were arguing for socialism as a more Christian economic system. So he was definitely no friend of that and it was his order, the Jesuits, who really were on the vanguard throughout Latin America of implementing uh, liberation theology throughout the region. So yes, a, a strong concern but from a more kind of traditional standpoint, definitely not from a liberationist one. Let me talk about another interesting dichotomy regarding the new Pope, Pope Francis, uh, that he has been lauded for his work with HIV AIDS patients, but yet he also takes the very traditional view when it comes to same-sex marriage, same-sex unions. Yeah, it kind of harkens back, I think, to the compassionate conservatism of uh, of former President Bush, where very much toes a orthodox line on sexual morality opposing contraception Argentina was the first country to legalize same-sex unions in 2010 he publicly sparred with President Fernandez over that so very much of a of a uh, Doctrine, uh, orthodox conservative line on that. Yet, I think he's he's shown himself to be a, connect, a compassionate cleric, uh, not allowing whatever convictions, theological convictions, he might have that to get in the way of compassion for the victims of AIDS and and other diseases. The fact that he stood up to President Fernandez in the past may have uh, bolstered his resume. Uh, for being Pope. The two are meeting this week, and although we'll probably not find out what, what comes of their meeting, what would you expect that they would be discussing in such a meeting? Uh, I think initially it will be one of of uh, reconciliation because, again, the two did spar publicly. At one point, uh, President Fernandez even denouncing him as a relic of the medieval age over his of his opposition to gay adoptions in Argentina. So I'd imagine at first we're probably looking at reconciliation and possibly contrition on the part of one or both. Uh, I would imagine, I would imagine that probably the uh, least happy Argentine citizen uh, over the news of Argent- naming of an Argentine Pope was probably President Fernandez. And haven't questions arisen about the Pope's actions and the Catholic hierarchy's actions during the military dictatorship in Argentina? Right. One of the really interesting questions that, uh, that emerged in the 80s and 90s is why do you see such radical national variations in the Catholic Church's stance vis-a-vis military dictatorships? And particularly interesting are the cases of the two neighbors, which couldn't be greater studies in contrast of Brazil during its uh, 21-year dictatorship and the Argentine Dirty War of eight years. 
the Argentine hierarchy, by and large, were among the uh, greatest collaborators with military dictatorship of any national church hierarchy in Latin America. While in Brazil, the church, by and large, became the main opponent of the uh, two-decade dictatorship. And so uh, one scholar, in particular political scientist Tony Gill, uh, set out to answer this question and made the argument that the greatest variable, the greatest factor in explaining this is the degree of Pentecostal growth in any given Latin American country. Uh, Pentecostal growth in Brazil had been phenomenal while in Argentina it was marginal. So in Argentina, the Catholic Church still basically had a de facto monopoly on religious production and uh, could basically afford to ignore its uh, poor and oppressed parishioners. While in Brazil, it's the opposite case that millions of already m millions of Brazilian Catholics had already left the church to become Pentecostals. And so the argument was that the Brazilian hierarchy had kind of adopted this strategic opposition to the military regime in a hope of presenting themselves as the defenders of the Catholic poor in in Brazil. Well, thank you. Dr. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University. Join us again on Latin Pulse. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you for having me again. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Last week, the Venezuelan government announced it would open a formal inquiry into the causes of the recent death of President Hugo Chavez. Chavez died from a massive heart attack brought on from his weakened condition after he had fought cancer for more than two years. Acting President Nicolas Maduro and others in the Venezuelan government have accused the United States and Israel for having a hand in the death of Chavez. In 2011, Chavez actually started this conspiracy theory when he floated this possibility during a speech to the Venezuelan military. He noted various left-wing leaders in Latin America had struggled with cancer and he accused the U.S. of having a secret weapon to cause the illness. At the time, the U.S. State Department called the accusation reprehensible. And recently, the State Department labeled the Venezuelan suspicions as absurd. Yes, various Latin American leaders have had cancer. Brazil's President Dilma Rousseff successfully fought lymphatic cancer before she ran for the presidency. Her predecessor, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, successfully beat throat cancer. Paraguay's former president, Fernando Lugo, also successfully beat lymphatic cancer last year. Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, had a successful surgery to remove prostate cancer last fall. Santos, by the way, is regarded as a conservative. And President Fernandez de Kirchner of Argentina was misdiagnosed with thyroid cancer, and that matter was cleared up after an operation last year. Although we know President Chavez had four cancer surgeries in Cuba, the Venezuelan government still treats this information as a state secret and has yet to reveal the details of just what type of cancer Chavez had. Beyond the conspiracy theories, this track record of cancer in high circles certainly makes one wonder about the reasons. 
And one of the key facts is that, like the rest of the world, cancer is now one of the leading causes of death in Latin America, surpassing car accidents and homicide. We reached out to Rolando Camacho, the head of the Program of Action for Cancer Treatment, for some answers. The program Camacho heads is part of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, which reports to the United Nations. We spoke to Camacho from the program's headquarters in Vienna, Austria, via long-distance line. Here are excerpts from our discussion. Well, there's many uh, reasons. Uh, the most easy to uh, identify is the uh, expectancy of life in Latin America has been increasing. So aging of the population is a many, main risk factor for cancer incidence. As soon as you reduce the mortality by due to infectious diseases, as soon as you increase the expectancy of life, you are expected to have much more uh, number of cancer cases every year. Uh, Latin America is one of the regions of the world has been uh, changing the pattern of the structure of the population, so aging group of, uh, is uh, bigger and bigger. So the silver lining here is that age expectancy is greater in Latin America, but now we have this problem to deal with. Yes, and then also we have been changing the lifestyle. In Latin America in particular, uh, smoking has been increasing in the recent decades, uh, but also obesity is a problem, and also uh, uh, lack of physical activity. Yeah, in Latin America, we have almost uh, close to a million of new cancer cases per year, and more than half a million of people die due to cancer every year. So this, uh, that's the main problem. And the main, also the problem is that uh, uh, the, the increased number of cases that are new and the, and the increased number of deaths per year are. Uh, the, uh, um, the rate of the increase in, in developing countries is higher than the rate of this increasing now in high developed countries. So cancer is not a problem anymore of only developed country or rich country. Cancer is also a problem of the society in development. Uh, because of this situation, uh, the program that we are working on, it's a PAC program, has been created in 2004. And in the, in the um, region, the main activity has been the service that we provide that is called impact missions or impact reviews. That impact missions or reviews is a, an assessment mission. So if I may clarify, what, what you are doing is both assessing and sharing best practices across the region. Well, what we are doing, this is in one sense, to assessing the situation providing the, 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 the document, which is a tool for the Minister of Health, uh, and the recommendation of how to improve the situation they have in the country. And in the other side, we are uh, doing outreach uh, with the decision makers. I'm wondering if there are some simple lifestyle changes that people in the region could make to help reduce the growing rate of cancers in Latin America? I think that uh, cancer has to be seen first with a disease that has to be, that has the chance to be prevented. 30% of the cancer case could be prevented only if the society changed their lifestyle. Smoking, obesity, diet, um, are things that are really 
the cause of cancer, and they can be reverted. But also 30% of the cancer cases could be cured if they are detected early. One of the main examples is the most common cancer in Latin America, breast cancer. Detected early could be cured. So this is the hands of the population, this is the hands of the cell system, uh, health system, and really uh, we consider that it will be uh, a success in the next decades that cancer will be under control in Latin America. It doesn't mean that cancer will be less in terms of incidence, in, ter in terms of new cases, but it, mortality could be reduced. Thank you, Rolando Camacho, with the program of Action for Cancer Treatment, joining us today from Vienna, Austria, on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is now on Mixler, webcasting at 2100 hours GMT on Fridays. That's 1700 hours U.S. Eastern Daylight Time. Our Mixler webcasts include weekend retrospectives. Latin Pulse is also available elsewhere on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.